Standby playback. And now, live. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And there's so many things. It's such a target-rich environment on this Conspiracy Theory Thursday. But I got to tell you this. I just saw this. Um, I'll cite Tucker Carlson because he got the quote. But the Biden administration, uh, which just had John Kirby uh, yesterday as one of their spokesmen, who said, look, uh, we're going to the cost of not supporting Ukraine is going to be American blood. And he said it just that clearly. And now, the, as Carlson puts it, the Biden administration is openly threatening Americans over Ukraine in a classified briefing in the House yesterday. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, he's running the Pentagon, informed members that, quote, if they don't appropriate more money for Zelensky in Ukraine, quote, we will send your uncles, your cousins, and your fo- sons to fight Russia. Unbelievable. Just absolutely outrageous. And I want to remind you, as we head up to a presidential election less than a year from now, before Donald Trump was elected, everybody on the left said, Donald Trump will get us into new wars. He did not. Donald Trump will alienate our friends. No, he communicated to our friends and said, you got to pay your fair share. And they did. Donald Trump got us out of conflicts. Joe Biden is getting us into conflicts. And now we've got Joe Biden's Pentagon threatening your kids, your families, saying we will send your sons and your cousins and your uncles to fight in Russia if you don't give Zelensky more money. Do you know what the problem is with a president who's owned lock, stock and barrel by oligarchs in places like Ukraine, by the communists in Beijing, China? This is where it ends up being. It's not just money. They're now threatening it's going to be, as John Kirby put it, one of Biden's spokesmen. He said it's going to be American blood if we don't support Ukraine. Now, you might say, well, factually, he could end up being accurate. Could be. But imagine a White House that would tell Americans your family's blood will be shed if you don't give more money to those oligarchs in Ukraine that Joe Biden and his son made all those deals with. Do you smell the stink of corruption that's coming off of all of that? Glad to be with you and glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that at Show and at LarsLarson.com. Now, earlier in the show, I talked to a young lady uh, who had uh, done quite a piece on the subject of addiction, and why some of the people who are making decisions about how we handle addiction to hard drugs and whether or not there are criminal consequences for that, they're listening to people who were addicts themselves, which in some cases for some treatment might actually make sense. In other cases, when you're forming public policy, I think it makes not much sense at all. Let me go first to Aaron, who's a naysayer, since we always promise to put naysayers first. Aaron, welcome to the program. And what do you and I disagree about today? 
Hey, Lars, uh, thanks for taking my call. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller, and I usually agree with you, except for, like, last week or the week before when you <laughs> used an anti-Semitic slur for somebody. But, when did uh, I use an anti-Semitic slur? Uh, you called somebody a Shylock. and uh, that's, No, that's I didn't call him a Shylock. I've used the term shyster, which is a... No, I have never used the term Shylock. Uh, Shakespeare did, but I didn't. So I don't know when you thought you heard that. But I'd love to have you document that because I have never used the term Shylock. Is there a place I can uh, find past episodes? You can find all of our past episodes of the show at www.larslarson.com. Very easy. Spell it E-N-R-O-N, although Owen is the way God intended. So So I um, I don't like the slur from you without any kind of backup either, Aaron. I don't take that kindly. I mean, you're the one who said it. No, I didn't. No, what you're saying is if you say I said it, that I must have said it. Is that your logic? I mean, I heard it. Aaron, can I tell you something, just so you understand inside baseball? My producers could tell you that at least six or seven times a week, somebody says, Lars, you said this. And I go to them and I say, I don't remember anything like that. And they said, no, that was this other host. Aaron, i got to tell you, people do that all the time. I've become accustomed to it. They'll say, why, you were talking about, uh, you know, this yesterday. I go, no, haven't talked about that in weeks. When did you think you heard it? Well, I heard it, and then they'll name a time I'm not even on the air. I will go back and uh, I will find the episode, and then when I find it, I will call back and we can address it then. Like you said, you're um, not your last guest, but the guest before that lady who is completely ignorant on drugs. And I would just like to ask, is there any other product or any other um, industry where we blame the, what, the company or the product seller for the death of, of, of its use. Yes, say, every, say single, every single company in America that sells an that's imperfect the, product. Well, I'm answering you, right? yes. I thought you asked a question. So you're saying, are, are there, if Ford Motor Company makes an imperfect automobile, like the Pinto, my dad used to love them, I thought they were a fun car to drive, but they had flaws, and the company knew about the flaws, and when the cars would uh, very, very infrequently blow up, literally, and incinerate the occupants, yes, we blamed Ford. If somebody makes an imperfect Dalcon Shield, which was an IUD, uh, the company got sued. So, yes, the answer to your question is, do we ever blame the people who either sell the, sell the product or make the product for the failure of the product and for the damage it causes? Yeah, just about every day of the week, Aaron. But now you're putting a stipulation like, oh, they, they made an imperfect product. Let me say, like, if I buy well, a Well, if somebody takes a shot of heroin and they don't get high from it, but they get dead from it, would you call it imperfect? Oh, I asked you a question. If I buy a gun and I shoot myself, commit suicide, is the gun manufactured? No, the gun worked perfectly. It did exactly what it was intended to do. Now, if you buy a gun and the gun barrel blows up, when you fire around to it because the barrel was made imperfectly, then you can blame the company. Now, but but if you use the gun and the intended purpose of a gun is to send a bullet out the barrel, and you did, but you choose to put it in your head, that's on you. Absolutely, and I agree. Do you think the person who was shooting that heroin we talked about intended to kill himself? No, but he intended to use it. 
knowing the consequences and the potential danger. No, but the consequences for the vast majority of people who shoot heroin is they get high, and then in a few hours or a few days they come down. That's what usually happens. So what I'm saying is if somebody takes a shot of heroin, and it's a hot shot, meaning they stepped on it, you know, twice instead of three times. And they, I, I'm they familiar. Did, and, I'm an ex-addict myself. Uh, I'm not, but I at least know the terminology. So if you <laughs> agree that the person who shot that heroin in, in, in his vein intended to get high but did not intend to get dead, then when the heroin he took from somebody who gave it to him or sold it to him killed him, it did not do what he intended to do with it, correct? Correct. However... He knows the risk. He knows the... Well, you know the risk when you get in a car and drive it down the road that you could slide off the road, hit a pole, and, and kill yourself. But that doesn't mean that Ford Motor Company is responsible because you drove badly. But it's a decent argument, Aaron. Thank you very much, and I always appreciate a great naysayer. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. you can't get enough Lars. Podcast every show at LarsLarson.com. It's getting me You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. What I'd really like to see is Congress get some of America's government spending under control. And in line with that, we've invited Veronique DeRougie, who's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University on. Is there any realistic possibility that we're going to see the Congress actually decide to try to bring federal spending closer to the income of the federal government? I'm afraid the answer is no, but in part it's because we don't hold them accountable, right? We keep, we keep first, I mean, it's been since 2010, since we've made actually spending a real kind of uh, focus of the election, well, basically, in 2010, if you remember, I mean, the, the whole focus of the election was electing people who were really, truly committed to, um, to cutting spending. Now, you can say it didn't get us very far, but we got still, we got some spending caps and we got certainly some talk about spending. And I think voters are just, it seems that they are, as, you know, most voters are, are as uninterested of cutting spending as um, Congress is. So that, for that reason, I'm, I'm, I'm worried. I mean, it, it can't be any worse than if, uh, it can't be worse than if, uh, the Democrats had full control, but is it going to be better? I don't know. Republicans always seem to have a reason to spend. Well, and when you suggest that most Americans really don't care that much, is it perhaps because because of the largesse of the federal government uh, and because of the many, many ways in which it shovels out money to virtually every group in America, that every one of those groups of Americans realizes, if I suggest cutting spending over there, they're going to cut some of the spending that's coming into my pocket. So when everybody has a dog in the fight, you know, that if we cut spending, I'm likely to get cut along with everyone else, that it's going to require sacrifices, then people say, no, keep on spending. But 
But is that the reason that we've effectively corrupted Americans who at one point American families and American businesses were largely independent of the federal government? Now it seems almost everybody gets something from Uncle Sam. Well, I think I think you've said you've touched on a point that's very uncomfortable for most people. But it used to be the case of being dependent on others uh, financially was not a good thing. And now people seem to think that actually it's normal. There's absolutely no, you know, no problem being on on getting welfare and getting a lot of money from the federal government and the state governments, by the way, um, and 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 your whole life. Um, that's that's an important point, but I think there's there's two other points. I think people don't there's so there's another thing you said that is true. It's like people uh, are okay with cutting spending, but they don't want to cut uh, spending that will affect them. So, for instance, like the two the three biggest driver of our future debt are Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, yeah. and I. I I think these are like the ones that have the least likely. Uh, support, popular support to be cut and to be reformed, right? And yep. all the rest, I mean, I'm all in favor of putting everything on the table and cutting everything. But if you don't control these, you're not going to make a ton of progress, right? And, and, and you, so people just don't want to cut these important programs. They also don't realize how much it is affecting our future debt. But they also, when you, you look at polls, when people are polled about, whether they're in support of, of spending, they say yes. And what they want to spend is like stuff like foreign aid. But foreign aid is not not driving our future aid. It's, it's like it's ridiculously small. Yeah, I mean, so uh, it's just a uh, lack Veronique, of information. You know, they don't want their own stuff. You know the numbers better than I do. But if the overall spending of the federal government is now approaching what six trillion dollars, and foreign yeah. aid is fifty mm-hmm. billion. So this is this is like uh, I, I try to translate it into terms that that I can wrap my head around. Somebody who makes uh, spends sixty thousand dollars a year, and you say, "Well, we're going to cut out this one expense," and you say, "That's five hundred dollars. Five hundred dollars is not making a big difference in my sixty thousand dollars of spending. It, it's five hundred bucks, but it's but it's not much." I think I've done the uh, the proportions correctly there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly what you're saying is exactly correct, and this is why I'm saying if you don't tackle the uh, the the drivers of our future debt, which is Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And by the way, it's not that they impact the debt, but the debt slows growth, and they cause a whole lot of distortion. For instance, in the case of Medicare, um, they cause major distortion in the healthcare system that explains why the healthcare uh, provision is so much more expensive than it should be right now. Um, and so it's just like there's all the, there's so many reasons to actually tackle these programs with people just either they don't know or because it affects them, they're they're scared of touching what they know for going into something that they don't know. And and also there's just a lot of you know the, there's this mystique that you've paid for social security and, and so you're 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 entitled to it. Well actually this is not how it works. You've paid for Social Security, which gave money to the people who are currently retired, right? It's yep. a pay. It's a system where you you pay for people who are currently retired while you're working, and then you have to have other people pay for you. There's no account with your name on it for Social Security. There's none of this. And in fact, 
uh, when you hear a lot of Democrats talk about how it's not contributing to the to the debt, it's not true. Actually, the the the, the Social Security Trust Fund has been in uh, hitting a permanent deficit since 2010, yep. and that means that ever since, right? They've had to it, actually well, when when the trust fund basically goes and say when the program says to Treasury, here here's an IOU from our trust fund. The way the federal government pays it back is by borrowing money. So it already contributes to the debt today, and it's only going to get worse. Well, because in raw numbers, the amount, I mean, I I earn a paycheck. I have to pay Social Security and Medicare. uh, But the amount that all of us workers are paying in is not currently sufficient to write all the checks that are being written. It falls short, doesn't it? Well, so what what ends up happening is when the when the trust fund goes uh, goes dry, which is going to be probably around twenty thirty, uh, basically the program reverts to what we call a pay as you go system, where uh, Social Security can only uh, pay the benefits for the taxes it's collected that year, and that usually means there's going to be a twenty five percent cut um, of In benefits seven years. across the board. In about seven yeah, years, yeah. I mean, right? it, it, that number, that timeline changes depending on um, well, if we have another recession. It's going to be sooner. If it's, you know, if there's all sorts of, of things, but it's roughly, it's not looking good. And so we're going to be talking a lot about social security reform. I bet you in the le- in the next, you know, ten years, at some point, they're going, they have going to have to have no choice because that happens by law. I mean, the program is going to either the, the, the their Congress is going to either the, the cuts are going to happen or the Congress is going to have to change the law one way or another. Um, so we're going to be talking about that a lot. And, and what's the best way to cut? Because if you say to me, well, we should means test it. So we take all the people who've been responsible for the last 20 or 30 or 40 years and have put money aside for their own retirement. Those people are self-sufficient. Cut their checks. Give the money only to the people who spent every single paycheck they had and never put any money aside. It, it creates a real moral hazard, doesn't it? Well, so what what it, what it would do is it would turn it into a needs-based program. I actually am totally against aid-based, exactly, welfare. And the Democrats don't want that, right? They don't want that because they think that the support for Social Security, and they're probably correct, is because it is so, it's general, right? It goes yep. to everyone. Everyone has the feeling that they have a stake, and, and then there's no stigma of welfare and all this. But I think, like, um, age-based programs are completely outdated because seniors are overrepresented in top-income quintile. Um, they didn't used to be when they created Social Security, when you used to not work, when you stopped working because you retired or you were too old, too old to work or you were, you know, injured or whatever, you were poor because there was no functioning capital markets in the 1930s um, and all of this. Um, but now it's not the case. No, it's not the case at all. Veronique Desrougis, thank you very much, and Happy New Year to you, ma'am. She's a senior research fellow at George Mason University, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.
only one in five people with disabilities. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google. Yeah, he's everywhere. The Lars Larson Podcast. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. When I first saw notice several years ago that there were institutions like a local library or a local school that were saying, we're going to host a drag queen story hour for children. My first thought was, you got to be kidding me. This is going to get shut down in two seconds by parents who are going to say this is absolutely inappropriate, especially for young children, but probably inappropriate for any community place or any school below college level. And I'm not even sure why you'd have a drag queen event at a college. But uh, at this point, we've got a fight going on uh, in many communities around America about these drag queen events. Uh, and now the state of Tennessee has become the first state in the nation to bar sexually explicit drag shows from public places where children, minors, may be exposed. I thought we'd talk about that with Carson Steelman, who's with Heritage Action. Carson, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. How is it possible that this stuff is not being rejected almost immediately, right off the cuff? by every community in America, even the most liberal ones, would say this can't be appropriate fair for children, can it? Yeah, absolutely not. And a lot of these bills that are moving in states, about 14 states moving um, to to uh, complement Tennessee's efforts here, they're pretty specific. It's, you know, no nudity, no sexual content, and so on. So it's pretty remarkable that this is somehow controversial for the left. Uh, but it's not surprising, uh, given that this is kind of part of the broader problem. Uh, you also see left-wing activists in states across the country pushing for minors to be put on cross-sex hormones and uh, and go through dangerous and experimental uh, surgeries. Uh, so it's unfortunately not surprising, but it's really encouraging to see a lot of states fighting back, not only for um, these uh, cross-sex hormones and surgeries, but also uh, at these sexually explicit drag shows. Well, and it's funny because, Carson, I was a reporter a long time ago, but I was a reporter for about 20 years. And I remember uh, talking to police and having them say, yeah, Lars, we got statutes on the books we can use for stuff like this, even for things like uh, printed material, like pornography, which is legal under the First Amendment, as long as it's not child porn uh, for adults. But but they would have statutes, uh, things like contributing to the sexual delinquency of a minor. So if there was some adult out there who was supplying pornography to children, you say, no, that stuff shouldn't be with children. And if you supply it to them, there are going to be consequences. Now it sounds like all that stuff has just been thrown out and states are being forced to have to pass new laws uh, to to actually say you can't do this stuff here. Yeah, that that's exactly the right point. I mean, this is stuff that in any other case would probably be against the law, uh, but because it's part of the left radical gender ideology agenda, it's somehow acceptable and even encouraged. And this is happening in, in red states and blue states, purple states all across the country. Uh, so it's, it's disappointing that states have to take this action, um, but I'm glad to see them doing it. I mean, it, it, there's also like a reason that we don't let children watch R-rated movies. Uh, and that's, in my opinion, not even as bad in, in a lot of cases as some of these drag shows. Um, so, you know, we, we understand that children aren't mature enough to make these uh, decisions about their 
uh, sexuality. A lot of times they don't even understand what that means at this point. Um, and they're, they're not mature enough to watch uh, and be exposed to this material. Uh, and a lot of times, too, it, it could potentially put kids on a really rough pathway forward. Uh, they might have depression or anxiety or gender confusion moving forward. Uh, so it's not something that's good for their mental health. It's uh, a threat to their physical safety. So it's, it's really good to see states fighting back. Well, Carson, I mean, I've been stunned by the videos I've seen from public places like libraries. These aren't sleazy strip clubs or something like that. You see a public library where a man who's clearly a man dressed up as a woman, uh, sometimes in very little underwear, let's put it that way, underwear that, you know, might be described as a thong, uh, is, is dancing in front of very small children. And even if that performer is not trying to groom those children for some kind of sexual abuse it certainly might set the kids up oh it's okay to watch an adult man or an adult woman uh dress in in scanty clothing uh and and put on the kind of the kind of performance that is is i think explicitly sexual in and of itself these aren't people you know dancing the waltz they're not dancing the jitterbug they are they are dancing in the kind of dancing you might ordinarily find in a strip club I just I'm kind of stunned that library boards and school boards haven't been quicker to shut this stuff down. Yeah, well, you're talking about the same uh, groups of folks who are actively putting pornography in school libraries. Uh, It's 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 encouraging this sort of uh, behavior and normalizing this for young kids. So, of course, they're going to have problems growing up. And oftentimes, it's happening without parental consent or notification. So while parents are kept in the dark, their children are being exposed to uh, sexually explicit content uh, and these drag shows that could damage them for a very long time. Um, if if there was a child who was exposed to this by somebody else and, and was abused by somebody, they need therapy. I mean, I don't understand how this is any different. Well, and when you make the argument that kids should know about the birds, birds and the bees, frankly, I think they ought to have it explained to them by their parents. But even if you said by high school, we'll try to fill in any gaps, we'll give sort of the mechanics of everything, the mechanics of both the sexual process, birth of children, and, and maybe sexually transmitted diseases, we'll let make sure that kids who are 15, 16, 17 understand the mechanics. Even that doesn't justify this kind of stuff because... Even if you say, well, some people like to dress up this way and some people like to perform this way, they're still very much outliers uh, out of American society, aren't they? Yeah, and I think you're right. Any sort of birds and bees talk like that uh, is the parent's responsibility, period, the end. Uh, And a lot of times, even once you get older, like you said, into high school, um, when there are a lot of uh, different curriculum for uh, sex ed, it shouldn't be encouraging bad behaviors. It should be understanding the mechanics and anatomy of how things work uh, and also understanding self-respect, too. That's a huge thing I think that's missing uh, in a lot of young people in America. They're being encouraged uh, by the left-wing gender radicals, but also by social media, uh, by movies and video games and all sorts of things to dress a certain way, to act a certain way, to have a a certain number of partners. And they're really missing out on what... uh, how this really should work, uh, how they should have self-respect, how they should be with somebody who cares about them. And that's that's what's not included uh, in this sex ed and in this drag show um, movement that we've been seeing from the left. Uh, so it's turning kids in the wrong direction and setting them up for a long-term failure. I mean, Carson, I have to admit, I'm a granddad, and I've got a, a granddaughter who's about to turn seven. 
And and even her, I watched her grow up, you know, up to seven. And there was a point where mom or, you know, grandma had to explain to her there are times, you know, where you're going to go take a shower, take a, you know, but there are people you can do your mom uh, or your dad can give you a shower or bath, things like that. There are times where you don't take your clothes off. It is not appropriate. And and again, that goes back to self-respect. And as adults, we kind of take that for granted that we understand what the, the rules are and their rules, not only not to embarrass anybody else, but to make sure that you're you're protecting yourself as a child. And, uh, and and I think my granddaughter's done a great job of it. She understands appropriate dress and appropriate times to be around people that, you know, she might go, you know, grandma might help her take a shower, you know, gra- you know, not granddad and, 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 and mom might help her take a shower. But all of that stuff is explained to kids. And then you throw them into the public schools and, and, and the schools just rip all that to shreds. I'm glad to see that Idaho, Kentucky, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas are actually following Tennessee's lead and going after this and banning these things altogether. Don't put these shows on for kids. Carson, thank you very much for coming on, and thanks for what you do at Heritage Action. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. And you'll find the question at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Larson Show, it's a pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. Or you can go to my website. The vote counts the same at LarsLarson.com. And you can send an email to talk at LarsLarson.com. You know, it does seem hard to believe that Joe Biden could be equally bad at just about everything he does. Now, maybe you add into that his advancing dementia. As our friend Seton Motley has pointed out, Seton, is, of course, is the president of Less Government. Great, great organization. But uh, Seton, welcome back. It, it's easy to believe at this point, nobody could be unintentionally so bad at everything to do this much damage to this country without intending to do it. Is it possible Joe is just accidentally lucking into being the wrecking ball for America? Well, he's not lucking into anything. He's the figurehead. He's the puppet. Uh, and the Obama-incorporated uh, residuals are the ones pulling the strings. Uh, yeah, you know, this is all intentional. This is, I, I, I've, I've had this argument with people for a long time. Everybody thought we won the Cold War when the Berlin Wall fell, and I, I said no. That's the chess equivalent of someone sacrificing their bishop on the way to checkmating you. And yep. the U.S. is losing the Cold War right now as a result of this administration, not necessarily Joe Biden specifically, but his figurehead administration is doing this. Yes. Wasn't it one of Hillary Clinton's associates, uh, I think from college or just after, who said, we'll give, you, we'll give them the rope they need to hang themselves? Well, actually, it was... Um, the, I think it was Vladimir Lenin that said that. Um, it's very, very easy to confuse the quotes with uh, Democrats. If you remember, the, great, the late, great Rush Limbaugh used to read excerpts from uh, Al Gore's book, Earth in the Balance, and the, and the 
Unabomber's manifesto, and you couldn't tell the difference. You couldn't tell <laughs> which, which was which unless you memorized both word for word. Uh, so yeah, that was Vladimir Lenin. Um, they, we will sell, they, we will sell them the rope with which we will hang them, and we didn't even buy it. We gave it to them. <laughs> we just, we just, we didn't pay for. You know, we didn't require money. We required money. We sold it to them. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the the Biden administration getting millions of dollars. Uh, uh, you know, relatively, comparatively less nefarious with Ukraine and, and Romania, although that's corrupt, too. But the money from China is, hey, let's let them steal $600 billion a year in intellectual property. Let's let them run roughshod over our manufacturing sector. Let's let them buy farm uh, farmland next to our military bases. Uh, let's let them run the colleges and universities with the Confucius Project. I mean, it's, it's completely transparent at this point because, you know, I, I always say human nature as such is if you get away with a three out of ten crime, the next time you'll come back with a four or five. You won't stay at three. You'll push the envelope a little bit. And then you get away with a four or five and you come back with a six or a seven. Well, we're at nine or, or greater at this point. So what do we do at this point? I mean, because I tell people you almost if I sat down as a talk show host a decade ago and said, Let's make up an America, which is so crazy that we'll never run out of topics for me, except I, I tend to be like the uh, the guy from CBS who used to say nothing could be finer than a crisis that is minor in the morning. Because for a, a, t- a radio news guy, if you got up and nobody was getting hurt or anything, but it was a crisis of some kind, you'd say, great, I've got a story I can cover. You know, not that we wish for bad things, but we say, OK, when when stuff happens, except this is one where on almost every front people get hurt. Inflation hurts people. Low wage rise hurts people. Massive government spending is going to hurt my granddaughter or her kids or or their kids. Um, and and then you've got uh, war in Ukraine hurting us financially, hurting us otherwise, putting us at risk of World War Three. A lot of the other border. things. The border, the border, which I was getting that that's the latest one where. You know, you got this Mallorca's Sergeant Schultz guy running around like Baghdad Bob saying there's no crisis at the border. As as In fact, if Saturday Night Live was still funny and if the writers weren't on strike, they'd have a skit where, you know, 2000 people dressed in fairly nice clothing, all of them fighting age males would come rushing past poor Mallorca's. And, and he'd be saying there there's no crisis at the border like poor Kevin Bacon at the end of Animal House. Didn't they? Didn't they do that with with Baghdad Bob twenty years ago? I mean, yes, I, I they, did. they did. That. But they, they won't still, do it now. Yeah, when they were still attempting humor, you're exactly right. No, this is this is all you know. This is the all out front, and then of course we had the Rahm Emanuel quote, two thousand and eight: uh, "Never let a crisis go to waste." And what you're getting now is manufactured crisis. Well, we have the real crisis that you listed. Don't get me wrong. But then when they need to really cover up something, all of a sudden, George, what's his name's arrested? What's his name? Santos. Yeah, George, George Santos. Santos. 37 charges, felony charges or whatever. So, you know, and, and then that gives them a story to cover so they can justify ignoring all the real stories we just listed. Uh, you know, it takes them six seconds to arrest George Santos. It's been four and a half years for Hunter Biden. Still nothing. 
And by the way, you know, for all the all the rap on Trump, who now all the polls are indicating he's the only guy who can win the nomination. He's the only guy who can beat Biden. And the, the left is going absolutely apoplectic. And then CNN invites him on like, oh, Trump's going to get uh, barbecued or uh, fricasseed uh, on CNN. And instead, he makes the entire network look so angry that a bunch of their left wing acolytes are demanding that, that what is his name? Chris Licht the guy who's the new CEO at, at CNN, right. get fired for inviting on the biggest ratings draw in television history to be on a failing TV network to boost their ratings because they hate the fact that, that probably well, they had more audience last night than they've had in six months. If you'll recall, they've kind of, they kind of helped Trump along in the primaries for two, in 2016, not 2020, but in 2016 when there was a primary, for two reasons. One, he helped with the ratings, and two, they thought he was the easiest to beat in the general election. So, you know, barring uh, 2,000 mules and uh, Google and uh, big tech silencing real news stories to a massive degree and warping search results, Trump won that election last time. So he can win it again this time. The question is, can we overcome the margin of fraud? And I think we can. I mean, I'm glad to see some of the new protections that are built in. They don't go far enough, but they're there. Make it hard to cheat and easy to vote. I'm all, I'm for that all day long and twice on Sunday. But this is, I mean, the Mayorkas, and, and maybe he gave a, a little bit of it away. We ran this sound, but we're going to run it again tonight. And uh, what he said was, we've been planning this for two years. And I thought, oh, my God, it's one of those Washington gaffes where he actually yeah. says the truth accidentally. Yeah, you've been planning for a massive multi-million invasion of the United States for two years, and now the plan right. is all coming together. It's working just the way we planned it, says Mayorkas. That's Heat Motley from Less Government, and this is The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. This vote is not a vote to impeach President Biden. This is a vote to continue the inquiry of impeachment. Well, it's at least a start, and that is Mike Johnson, who is the Speaker of the House, and he announced today that the House will take a formal vote, it'll happen next week, to open an impeachment inquiry against President Biden next week. And I think that's at least a start. Now, is it enough? Should they have done it months ago? I'd, I'd be inclined to say yes, except I'll explain the reasons why I think waiting probably did some more good. But let me get to that in a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find it two places on Twitter or X 
at Lars Larson Show and on our website at LarsLarson.com. So House Speaker Mike Johnson announced today that the House will take a formal vote next week to open an impeachment inquiry against President Biden. So if it strikes you that, well, they're being uh, they're being really careful about this. Uh, or they're being slow and they're stalling. I, I would actually say I think it's good that they're being careful. And to back that up, here's what I'd cite. Uh, over the years, uh, one of my lo- most longest lasting friends uh, is former District Attorney Josh Marquis. And he would always tell me, Lars, if you're going to prosecute somebody, make sure you've got all your ducks in the row. Because the worst thing that you could do is launch a prosecution of somebody who you believe and the evidence shows is actually guilty of serious offenses. And then to get into the trial and realize you should have done a little bit more investigation, you should have crossed some more T's and dotted some more I's. That's what Mike Johnson says they're doing. They've got to this point, they've got a bunch of Republicans, and of course, sadly, a lot of the Republicans in the House of Representatives are more like rhinos, Republicans in name only. And they had to be dragged, kicking and screaming, to even say, yes, we can open an impeachment inquiry, despite all the evidence out there that Joe Biden's crime family has received at least $24 million, and maybe a lot more than that. And for all I know, in 12 months, we may know that it's $50 million that the Biden crime family enriched itself with. And a year ago, did we have any direct connection to Joe Biden himself? We knew that Hunter Biden was making big bank in Ukraine and Kazakhstan and Moscow and Beijing. And we knew that the brother, James Biden, was making a lot of money. But could you connect any of it directly to Joe Biden? Because that's what they were selling, the influence of Joe Biden as then vice president of the United States. And the answer is a year ago, no. Today, they can't. In fact, in the last two weeks, what have we found out? We found out that millions of dollars flowed from China to Hunter Biden's law firm, and that the money was then distributed from there to people like James Biden, other members of the Biden family, including checks that were cut by that corporation to Joe Biden himself. And I think that's significant. You had one check from James Biden to his brother Joe for $40,000. And if you say, well, what was that money all about? Well, according to Joe and James, it was repayment of a loan. If you believe that, And to believe that, you'd have to believe that Joe Biden, who's never done a job in the private sector in his lifetime, he's been a member of Congress, he's been a senator, he's been a vice president, now he's president. Um, They all make good paychecks, but they don't make get-rich paychecks. But James Biden, the president's brother, would have you believe why Joe loaned me a couple of hundred thousand dollars the other day, and now I'm paying it back, strangely enough, from money that James Biden got from China. That's how they were trying to hide the money. I've loaned friends of mine, I've loaned money to friends of mine. I've had friends loan me money over the years. If any time it was more than a few dollars, there was always a piece of paper that said, this is the deal. Apparently, Joe Biden was so flush, having worked his entire life as a senator, vice president, and now president, and as a senator making most of the time about $150,000 a year, which does not allow you to maintain two households and be able to bank hundreds of thousands of dollars. But his brother would have you believe that Joe had millions of dollars that he was loaning out to family members. And strangely, when China started giving all that money to Hunter Biden for no work whatsoever, and there didn't appear to be anything he had actually done, no legal work or anything like that. So let's go back to Mike Johnson, because he talks about the fact 
that if you're going to launch an impeachment, you have to realize just how significant that is. Article 1 of the Constitution gives the House the impeachment authority, and I've said at this podium before, next to a declaration of war, impeachment, arguably the heaviest power that the, the House has. And it is, and it's important, and it shouldn't just be deployed, and I know that there are going to be people between now and next week when the vote is taken, because the House plans to take a vote next week to say, should we open a formal inquiry by the Congress and start calling witnesses? Well, already the Department of Justice under Joe Biden is blocking access to some of the most key witnesses for that impeachment. And why are they doing that? Because they know that if those witnesses testify, they're going to have to testify in a way that actually implicates Joe Biden. And I know that people are going to say, well, this is just a payback for the two impeachments of Donald Trump. Let me remind you of a couple of things about those impeachments. The first impeachment was because Donald Trump asked the president of Ukraine about corruption that was going on in Ukraine that involved Americans, to wit, the Biden crime family. He was suggesting that there were illicit deals being cut and lots and lots of money was being uh, you know, given to the Biden crime family. It turns out his phone call was exactly on target. But uh, the second impeachment was because Trump gave a speech on the Capitol grounds before he left office in January of 2021. And the accusation was he uh, he incited a riot. The events of January 6, 2021 at the Capitol building. Even the FBI agrees there was no incitement to riot. So Mike Johnson is being careful, he says, because he realizes the Democrat Party has cheapened the idea of impeachment. Previous couple of years, uh, the House Democrats cheapened impeachment. They, they used it for partisan political purposes. They went after Donald Trump twice. I served on the impeachment defense team twice. We called those sham impeachments, snap impeachments. They were. What you're seeing right now is exactly the opposite of that. You're seeing a very deliberate investigation following, uncovering and following the facts, following the truth where it leads. That's what the Constitution requires the House to do. Now, I got to tell you something, too. It's important to notice when the Democrats were in charge, and when uh, Richard Nixon was, pre was president of the United States, they said the, the White House is stonewalling under Nixon. Now, if you remember the history of Watergate, that's exactly what happened. It happened when I was a teenager. Well, guess what the Biden White House is doing right now? Listen again to House Speaker Mike Johnson. So we have come to this sort of inflection point because, Chad, right now the White House is, um, is, is, putting, is stonewalling that investigation. They're refusing to turn over key witnesses to allow them to testify as they've been subpoenaed. They're refusing to turn over thousands of documents for the National Archives. And the House has no choice if it's going to follow its constitutional responsibility to formally adopt an impeachment inquiry on the floor so that when the subpoenas are challenged in court, we'll be at the apex of our constitutional authority. It will be a movement of a vote of the full House and that will allow us to continue and, and continue on pace. I can't wait for the vote next week. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Just listen for five minutes. You'll feel better. 
more with Lars Larson right now. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday. Always glad to take your calls as well. We talk about education a fair bit on this program. And I want to point out to you that a scholastic book fair may be coming to your children's school this year. And we want to find out whether or not one of the biggest publishers in America is actually going to be pushing inappropriate content for kids. So Ryan Walters joins me now, the Oklahoma State School Superintendent, former U.S. history teacher and a good friend of the program. Ryan, welcome back. Hey, thank you for having me. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing uh, the efforts going to indoctrinate kids, you know, and you've got a book fair here going on where they continue to put inappropriate books um, and make them accessible to kids. And parents are sending kids to these book fairs going, hey, here's $5, we'll get you a book today, and being mortified with what the kids are bringing back home. And so it's just unbelievable how the left has infiltrated all these different areas of education um, to get inappropriate material in front of your kids. Well, thank God for the uh, group Moms for Liberty, Oklahoma, their Oklahoma chapter, that's saying you got to take these book fairs out of the schools if that's the kind of product they're going to put in front of kids. How in the world did Scholastic Book Fairs think we could get away with it? They or it could get away with this? And you know what I think, too? And, yeah, our Moms for Liberty chapter, man, we've got one of the best. I'm telling you, Moms for Liberty nationally is amazing. But, boy, we've got a great local chapter as well. We've got a lady named Janice Danforth who's just a rock star. And, you know, they alerted us to it. And so they, they are always really great at giving my agency, hey, look, we've seen this. Parents complain to us. We have parents now that have started sending us direct copies of the books. And what I really think, Lars, that they believe, the left still thinks they control our kids. They still think, you know what, we'll just push it right past these parents. You know what, we'll just shut them down at board meetings. You know what, we will just target parent groups, mock them, try to bully them and intimidate them. But I got a message for the radical left. I don't know if they've ever run into to moms and, and, you know, at a soccer game or at a basketball game. But let me tell you something. They don't back down, okay? So when you start messing with their kids, uh, um, they're not going to back down, and we are going to stand firmly with them every time. Well, let's talk. I mean, I don't know. I haven't read these books, and I don't know if you've looked at them or not, but one that seems to apparently have drawn a lot of attention is called The Hate You Give because it contains apparently a stack of profanity along with apparently frequent use of what we'll, we'll abbreviate as the N-word because we don't say that word on the radio, but how is it that this is appropriate for kids? Well, and I'll tell you, we're looking through, there's about a dozen different books that were at the Scholastic Fair um, here in Oklahoma that were sent to us. And, you know, there's just certain things that you're going, you know, why is the, the language, the sexuality of a lot of the books, uh, we see this transgenderism being pushed, and then conversations about graphic sex scenes, and again, we're finding them in book fairs that are targeted towards elementary school. I think that's important for your audience to remember, too. Again, it's, it is something that parents will send their kids a few dollars, go to school. It's, it's got to be academic, right? It's a book fair at your school. Scholastic yep. has always had a name that you've associated with academics. So great. Here's $5. Go buy them. And they bring these books home. And parents are going, how in the world is this continuing to happen? So, yeah, I mean, it, it is being targeted towards young people. That's another thing to remember. So we're not talking high school kids. We're talking elementary school. And, again, the left continues to want to drive into kids at an early age. Hey, you know, those white people over there, they're, they're racist. The country's racist. Just remember that. And, you know, it confuses kids because you've got kids in our schools. I had a parent tell me the other day, you know, my kid's going, 
well, I, you know, I'm, I'm black and I'm with these white kids and I don't think they're racist. Why are they telling me they're racist? It, it's, it's confusing kids and causing division that's not there. No, and in fact, uh, Ryan, as I said, I'll confess, I have not read this book called The Hate You Give. I mean, there have been times over the years where I've gone off and, and went on Kindle and ordered some of these books so that I can, I can read them. But this one, uh, The Hate You Give, is described by its publisher, Harper Collins, is about a black high school student who struggles with identity and trauma after she witnesses a police officer shoot and kill her friend. So I'm just going to guess wildly, uh, you know, and maybe inaccurately, but I'm going to guess that she saw a police officer shoot a kid and you're going to be led to believe he was shot because he's black, not because he was doing anything wrong. And the police officer is just a racist. In other words, it carries all kinds of loaded messages for kids who are not mature enough to sort those things out. And, and, and I want you to notice, too, the way the left reacts Whenever you try to contextualize or bring broad facts to kids and go, hey, in the earlier grades, you know what we want you to do? I mean, remember, Lars, here in Oklahoma, we launched Prager University in all of our schools. Every parent can access it. And the left has lost their minds. And one of the things I keep telling people, I go, guys, that's a five-minute video. A five-minute video giving some kids some context about Christopher Columbus, giving kids context early on about George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, so people understand the character of these influential um, um, folks on American history, and to talk to them about not George Washington as a slave owner, but George Washington as a hero in the American Revolution and in our state and in our national government, and, and giving kids some ability to start from a premise of America is an incredible country. Let's start learning more about it as they grow up. You know, Lars, my daughters are nine and six years old and love to tell history stories because of videos like these PragerU videos. But yep. the left loses their mind because, heaven forbid, you let kids think that America was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, that, that the left cannot tolerate that. And, and what's crazy is, Ryan, one of the other issues about that book in particular is they say, oh, it's not a big deal that the N-word is used because you will hear kids use it. Well, these days, if you hear anybody but a person of color use that word, you're, you're going to have trouble. Right. Because they'll say, well, if you have black skin, then you're allowed to use the word. If you don't, you don't. And for years, I'm familiar with the argument of saying, well, we can't have Huck Finn. We can't have Tom Sawyer uh, written by Mark Twain, who was a famous abolitionist and maybe teach some history there and say he used that word, but he used it in context. Now we're hearing say, well, you can have this book about racist cops shooting, <laughs> shooting a kid because he's black and you can use the word because it's in the right context. Well, Tell me that Samuel Clemens did not use the word in the context it was used to kind of set the tone and the era and the attitude. Remember, uh, Mark Twain was an abolitionist of saying this is the way people regarded uh, black Americans at the time. It was ugly, but it's in the book. So you understand how people were disparaging of people. That wasn't the right context. You have to ban Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer, but you can have the book, The Hate You Give, which carries this message that ryan i don't think matches the numbers they say in fact one of the articles about it said uh that one kid uh grade 11 uh in this case uh, where it was uh, taken off shelves despite he said it led to some discussions despite some classmates never having heard of police brutality well by the numbers ryan police brutality against any americans is relatively rare 
It's hundreds of millions of interactions between the police and citizens, and about 1,000 times a year, a police officer, because of the circumstances, has to shoot somebody who's presenting a threat, and about one quarter of that number is black Americans out of hundreds of millions of interactions. between. So if they say, well, I'd never heard of police brutality like that, you're right. It's relatively rare. Let's make all the kids believe that it happens all the time, which is what this book seems to want to do. Well, yeah. And how about, you know, instead of taking young kids and telling them that police are evil, racist people, how about instead you start with telling them, look, the police in this community are here to protect you. They are they are they are actually uh, putting their lives on the line to protect the public. And, and we are tremendously thankful to have pe- men and women in our society that are willing to stand the line and to secure our families and our safety. And every night they don't know if they're coming home. How about we start there, and then you start seeing a society like we used to have, where you have people who respect police officers, who respect our military, and frankly respect the principles the country was founded on. Then you'll see a society that is much more reflective of the values of our founding fathers, the values this country was founded on, and frankly, it will create better communities, better states, and a better country. I think so, too. And and if you're a teacher and you want to say, does do inappropriate police actions and even illegal actions happen? Yes. And they are extraordinarily rare. But I doubt you're going to be able to get that picture across in public schools. That's Ryan Walters, Oklahoma State School Superintendent. Ryan, thanks so much. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Control. Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. In a moment, I want to tell you about this Chinese communist link company that wants to run a battery factory in Illinois. Not in Beijing, not in Wuhan, but in Illinois. And at the end of the day, they might eventually get $7.5 billion of your tax money to fund a Chinese communist-linked battery factory in America. And I think there are huge problems with that. But let me get to that in a moment. First, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, you go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. First, I want to take this call from Joel in Virginia, listening on WCHV, great station. Uh, Joel, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Thank you, Lars. Uh, I just wanted to ask, I don't know if it's this simple or not, but Congress controls the purse strings for the EPA, which gets probably about $84 billion a year. Why, why doesn't Congress just act on limiting, you know, limiting their ability to uh, force people to buy electric cars? In theory, they can. 
But in practicality, in today's uh, politics, they can't. And let me tell you why. Uh, Donald Trump at one point disagreed with some of the things that Congress was funding. So he said, I'm not going to sign the bill unless it says, unless it has these things in it or out of it. Either way, right? And we shut, we saw the government shut down for about 30 days. It was one, if not the longest shutdown, it was one of the longest shutdowns. So Joel, I know this sounds bizarre, but imagine if your family was funded the way the U.S. Congress operates. And you went to your family and said, hey, family, we can't afford this really expensive, and I'll pick something like cable TV package that we have. So you know what? We're not paying for cable anymore. We're going to switch to online streaming. And the family says, that's great, Dad. How are you going to do that? And you say, well, I'm going to defund the cable package. Now, an individual like you just calls the cable company and says, I want to cancel my cable, right? But if you were Congress, your family would say, well, Dad, if you want to defund cable, you have to defund the mortgage the electric company, our water service, our garbage service, our sewer service, and the money we spent at the grocery store. And if you're willing to not have any of those things, then you can cancel the cable package. And you say, well, that's the dumbest way to budget I could ever imagine. I mean, can you imagine the head of a big company like Nike or Microsoft saying, you know, that, that division we've got out there in where Virginia, let's say, is not making us any money. Can we shut that down? Well, only if you want to shut the whole company down, boss. And you'd say, well, that's dumb. We can defund one thing, can't we? Well, in theory, you can, but here's what happens in practicality, Joel. So the Republican Congress, which has a small majority, although it turns out a bunch of them are turncoat rhinos, they're already the ones who are saying, we're not necessarily going to vote to impeach Joe Biden. There are five or six of those those jokers, including one who apparently thinks he's going to get a gig at CNN if he votes the right way or, in my view, the wrong way. So the House passes the budget, right? And uh, so they say, OK, we're, we're going to pass the budget. The EPA doesn't get a stinking dime. And you pass the bill through the House because funding bills are a bill. They're an act of law. It's, it's called an appropriations bill. You send it over to the Senate where the Democrats have a bare majority. And let's say the Senate passes it and says, yeah, we agree with you. Defund the EPA. You then send that bill, which to become law needs the president's signature. And what do you suppose happens to that funding bill that doesn't have the EPA in it when it lands on Joe Biden's desk? It gets vetoed. It gets vetoed. And you say, well, we'll override the veto. That's good. Do you have a two-thirds majority in the House for that? Nope. Do you have a two-thirds majority in the Senate? No, we don't have that either. Okay, then we'll shut the government down. And everything except what are considered essential services, you know, the military still operates, the Coast Guard operates, uh, you know, the corrupt FBI still operates, but everything else gets cut off, including grandma's Social Security check at some point, mil some military payrolls, things like that. And you take that pain for, you know, in Trump's case, it was about 30 days. And then at some point, one side or the other bows and says, OK, we'll go ahead and, and, and pass it the way it is. And that's how that's how those kind of efforts get get derailed is you say, I want to defund one thing in the federal government. Well, you're going to have to have a majority in the House, a majority in the Senate. And you need Joe Biden's signature. And if you if you don't have that, then it's a game of chicken. So, so I know the auto workers are, are fighting for uh, benefit, you know, different benefits, more different work hours. 
but they need to fight for not producing electric cars. Because, well, they do. I mean, and, Joel, I, I don't think they realize it, but Joe Biden promised he'd be labor's best friend. Joe Biden is throwing labor, in the case of the UAW, the United Auto Workers, under the bus big time. And let me tell you what's going to happen. There are a couple of numbers you need to understand, and, and I'll throw these out. These tell me a lot. So the UAW says we're going to we're striking all three of the big automakers, and we want a 40% raise we want a 32-hour work week. We want to work eight hours a day, four days a week, 32 hours, and we want a 40% raise over the span of the contract. And you say, well, is that going to work? Well, let's see. Ford Motor Company lost $2 billion last year. And China, which wasn't even a big deal a few years ago in terms of auto exports, they are now becoming, they're on par to eclipse Japan in auto exports. So China wants to eat our lunch, and the big four are being or the big three are being held up by the UAW. And meantime, I'll tell you another number that that spoke volumes to me, Joel. How many people do, for every for every one hundred people who would be involved in making an internal combustion engine car? How many do you think they need to make an uh, electric vehicle? I'm going to say, I don't know, sixty. It's, I think it's 40. And so you say, but an electric vehicle is more complicated. Well, in some ways it is. And Detroit has been automating like crazy. If you see the assembly lines, you see the automated welding, welding, you know, the robot arms that come out and do spot welds and all this stuff. There's a lot of automation in making cars. But apparently, overall, it takes about 40% of the labor to make an electric car compared to the amount of labor it takes to make a, an, a, a gasoline car. So already... You know, the, the auto companies, Ford lost $2 billion last year. They're now going to be in heavy competition with China. China wants to win the game whether they make money or lose money. They're willing to lose money to win the game because once they win the game, it's like a monopoly. If you could undercut your competition long enough, put them out of business, then you can charge whatever you want. And Joe wants us in EVs, and the big, you know, the big three automakers are saying, we're losing money right now, and we lose money on every single electric vehicle we make right now. We lose money, even with the federal subsidies, even with Americans being told, you will buy an electric car whether you like it or not, and you will not find a gasoline or diesel car that you can even buy in just a few years. Even with all that, they're looking at real trouble, plus they have to reduce their labor force. So if you have a million UAW members, say, and you only need 400,000 to make a comparable number of EVs that nobody wants to buy anyway. What does the UAW tell its membership? They say, hey, we're going to get a big raise. The bad, that's the good news. The bad news is six out of ten of you are going to get a pink slip. And, and the other thing, too, is the, the, if those cars catch on fire, there are hazmat situations. Oh, no, not and, just catch on fire. How would you like to have been uh, in, in the middle of a hurricane with flooding and your EV gets flooded with salt water? Oh, I agree. And then... And, and, and then your car, your car may just explode in the next few days to the point where Florida authorities were telling people, if you think your EV has been flooded by the salt water in particular, don't park it near your house. Don't park it for God's sake. Don't put it in the garage. You could end up with a major problem. Yeah. EVs come with all kinds of problems, including fueling and travel and chargers and everything else. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show.
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Try that in a small town. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls, and I'll do that in just a moment. But I want to talk to Aaron Kliegman first, who's an enterprise reporter for our friend John Solomon at Just the News. Aaron, welcome to the program. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Now, we try to run a family show here, but... But I want you to describe as, uh, you know, as politely as you can, what the heck is the Transportation Security Administration, the TSA, you know, the folks who pat you down at the airport, what do they mean when they say they're going to spend 18, almost $19 million on non-binary screening systems? (laughs) Sure, happy to explain. So I guess how it works is it's a binary system for the most part, so because our TSA body scanners uh, will scan males and females differently. It's obviously to account for uh, different body types. And basically, and then people who say their gender was improperly assumed may ask for a rescreening before they get a physical pat-down. And TSA rules mandate for travelers to be patted, patted down by uh, officers of the same gender. So they're working on uh, sort of updating their technology, essentially, and the algorithm for, quote-unquote, increased uh, accuracy and efficiency but apparently a lot of this money is going towards updating the screening process to account for, I guess, uh, nine non-binary people, people who is choose don't be as either a male or a female. Now, in practice, and this is set to be rolled out in January, now how that actually manifests in practice, we'll have to see, but obviously it's a, a complicated issue because it's, you know, I guess how do you, how do you do that? Right? That's part of the question. I know you want me to know, but I I can't really. I I, I wish I could be more helpful to you, but that, well, that's I, essentially what it's doing. I mean, let's let let's do this. I I I've had a long time in radio, so I can usually work around things with euphemisms. If if the concern is that if you walk up to the TSA screener and you either by your dress, by the way you're dressed, or you say something, and the binary screener guesses that you are female, or you say I identify as female. And yet when you go through the scanner, there appears to be some contraband south of your belt buckle and north of your knees. Uh, then then you might say, well, the, the, what is that? And, you know, are you are you packing a bomb or are you just happy to see me? I mean, so h- how does this work? Well, that was put very, uh, very delicately, I must say. I try. Um, I, do, I do my best. Eric. So it's so it's. Um, the answer is it remains to be seen. Um, what um, officials are saying, this is to kind of promote civil rights and uh, kind of improve, improve customer experience. Um, right now, uh, apparently uh, 6% of those complaints about uh, TSA screening are from members of the uh, LGBT community. And uh, so I guess it's obviously a, we're talking about a minority of um, the population and, and even less so would uh, presumably identify as neither male or female. Obviously, a lot of those will identify as gay as opposed to uh, transgender. It's. I think what you're probably going to have is. I mean, it'll be interesting. Interesting to see uh, some some issues, some arguments, because it's sort of, you know, people are going to presumably be offended if they identify as what's not their biological sex, and if uh, the TSA people, you know, assume based on kind of what they see their gender, you could have some arguments and issues. I. I mean, you could see that holding up lines. It, it's. I think uh, we could be in for some interesting airport experiences next year. Well, we, we could because, look, and Aaron, I don't think I can be too outrageous on this because over the last couple of years, we've dealt with stories where, 
You've got somebody who says he identifies, she identifies as a female, but is in fact a biological male. And they complain when the health clinic does not inquire as to whether or not they'd like their PSA checked, you know, the, the prostate specific antigen, uh, and, and they're not offered a pap smear when they don't have anything to take a smear from. And, and yet they still pitch a fit about it and saying, you're, you're denying me my civil rights because even though I'm a biological male and I still got the plumbing downstairs, you, you didn't offer me a pap smear. And you're like, I wish some of these people would just get a, a, get, a get a clue ab- about what's going on. If you still have male parts, they're not going to offer you a pap smear. And if you, and if you, and if you have female parts, uh, by consequence, they're not going to offer you a PSA test either. And, and how much are we going to let the, 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 the tail wag the dog? Well, it's uh, you raised some interesting points, and uh, TSA's travel uh, engagement executive director, that's his title, uh, uh, Jose Bonilla, said he believes this new technology will lead to fewer pat-downs and complaints from, uh, you know, from certain communities, I guess, namely the LGBTQ community. And, and uh, his quote, he said, it, it will be gender uh, neutral. So I, again, it's, I, a lot of this will be a lot with so many government programs, I think you have an idea, but then it's how it's implemented is sort of not exactly thought out. And I think, and, and you can't really plan for this because, again, you don't necessarily know if someone would appear as, you know, to the average person as definitely a male or definitely a female, but they could identify as the other way. And again, the, it, there's no, uh, I, I don't think, I don't think technology can account for that no matter how much money you put into it. No, but but even that seems to have some gaps in it, because, for instance, Aaron, if if you and I you go to the airport, I mean, just based on your name and based on the timber of your voice, I'm guessing you're a male and I won't offend you by identifying you as a male. If you go to the airport and and you say, I identify as as a female, then they're going to have a female officer pat you down. And yet that female officer is going to encounter things that the female officer should not encounter and and that that's both a probably an HR violation for the TSA officer and and may not be all that good for you. So how do they accommodate these requests when you say well, well it's going to be gender neutral? Well, are you going to have men pat men down and women pat women down? You know, nobody wants to be patted down, but okay, if you got to do it at least have somebody of the same gender. Except what if you're gay? You know, if you're a gay male, do you want to be patted down by a woman instead of a man? I, I, I just I can't even draw a flow chart for how you'd make a decision on this stuff. Well, you'd also have um, you could have some male TSA agents who uh, I guess might, might be forced to pat down. A, so, you know, if, are, are they going to be forced to kind of pat down a woman who identifies as a man? That'd probably make the male TSA agent feel very uncomfortable. Uh, I would um, think so. I mean, I, at least so, I would I would be yeah. uncomfortable with that arrangement, wouldn't you, Aaron? Yeah, and I think most you know most gentlemen, most you know decent men will you know, would be about that. But so, are you going to have be so? Is a man going to be compelled to do that? There's a lot of I mean, you could have who knows? You could have lawsuits from this. It's it's a really complicated issue, and I think you could see parallels with some. Uh, you know, access to locker room access or bathroom access and other contexts. It's, it raises all of these questions that we really, uh, I mean, we really don't have good answers for because it's, uh, it just kind of, it's, it's such well, a new phenomenon over the past couple of years. Or wait years, till some, so, wait till some college age jokers who's traveling around the holidays and he's a guy walks in and says, I identify as a woman today and I'd like to be patted down by a woman. 
And, and tell me that's not going to happen, Aaron, because I can guarantee you there's a joker in every bunch. I try to be very straightforward when I go through the TSA line. I don't want to get sideways with the TSA when all I'm trying to do is get on a plane. But I guarantee you there's going to be somebody out there who's going to try that. Read the stories that Aaron Klegman uh, writes at justthenews.com. Aaron, it's a pleasure. Uh, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. The health, we're all on our... Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, I always ask for emails, and I get about uh, 1,000 to 1,100 a day. I mean, the meaningful ones, not the mortgage offers and penis pills and things like that. Uh, I get an, a, a bunch of interesting emails, and oftentimes they are from naysayers. Uh, and that's okay, because usually I'll write back and say, I'd sure love to have you call. Well, I got this one. And it started by saying, I support student loan cancellation. Universities and colleges have sold degree programs and encouraged loans to pay for them, knowing that their graduates often can't repay them when employed using their degree. Well, the man who wrote that is Craig, who joins me now, who took my challenge to call in as an ace here. Craig, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Thank you, Lars. Yes, I support student loan cancellation when needed. And my thought is that colleges and universities and not taxpayers should bear the cost of defaults on student loans. Uh, Isn't there a problem with that, though, Craig? Let me stop you right there, though. When you say the colleges and universities, the vast majority of which are owned by the taxpayers, when you say the colleges should bear the cost, that just means the taxpayers. So the taxpayers pay when the student loan is forgiven or they pay when the college has to bear the cost, because that's what most of the colleges are, a few private colleges, but most of them are taxpayer-funded institutions. So why should people, 70% of whom, that's the American public, 70%, have never sat in a college classroom, never had a shot at a degree, why should they pay the bill for somebody, and I'm guessing maybe somebody like you, who got the degree, or at least had the chance to get the degree, and went to school, and now doesn't want to pay the bill. Why should a bunch of people who never got to go to college pay that bill? Okay, first of all, I, I don't have a dog in the fight. Okay. I never took out a student loan, and I, I did graduate from college. Good. So, well, that, that's an interesting concept. I guess what you're suggesting is if the college has to pay for that, then they'll just add that onto the taxpayer's bill. Yeah, well, I, it'll and, be, I mean, since... Almost all the state colleges, all the community colleges, everything except the private colleges, the elite private colleges, are owned by the taxpayers. When you say make those guys pay, you're pointing a finger at yourself. You're a taxpayer. So you own that college or university. You help pay the bills for that college or university. Seventy percent of the American public does not have a college degree. And now a bunch of kids 
who got the chance to get a college education, no matter what they did with it, whether they used it or just they went down and partied for four years, the point is they got the opportunity, and now they're saying, I'd like somebody else to pay the bill because I decided it wasn't uh, wasn't useful. Now, you also say the universities and colleges sold the degree programs and encouraged loans knowing their graduates can't repay them when employed using the degree. Craig, isn't that up to you? to decide as the student that if you say, I want to learn underwater basket weaving, and and they say, well, it's going to cost $50,000. What are you going to do? I'm going to do underwater basket weaving. And then you say, well, are there any good jobs that pay well for underwater basket weaving? The answer is no. But isn't that on the buyer, not the seller? Well, my concern is that they don't tell you that you're not going to be able to make a living doing underwater basket weaving. Craig, Craig. If somebody said to me, Lars, I'm thinking of being a diesel mechanic, do you know how long it would take me on my smartphone to figure out what the average paycheck of an average diesel mechanic is in my area? About 10 seconds to find out what the average is. And even if you say, but, you know, community college is going to take two years, I said that the average will still be about that number two years from now. Is it on the person seeking the degree to find out, well, what does that job pay? I've always dreamed of doing button sorting or beetle tracking. What does that job pay? And you look it up, and then you can decide if it's worth 50 grand to learn how to do underwater basket weaving, button, button sorting, or beetle tracking, can't you? I think you give our students too much credit. Well, um, then, then, hold on. Why should somebody be going to college if they aren't smart enough to figure out what a job will pay when they get the skills necessary to do it? Well, obviously they are. So if I go down and apply for a loan to buy a house, they're going to look at my income, my credit status, and so on, and they're going to say, you're not going to be able to pay for this loan, so I'm no, not going to give hold it Hold on. That's where they care about getting paid back. You know what else they're going to do, Craig? You say, I want to buy this house, and it's half a million dollars. Their most important criteria is they say, then you go get an independent appraiser to show us that house is worth at least what we're, we're loaning you, probably 20% more than what we're loaning you. The bank wants to know what are you buying and what's it worth. Well, when you're buying an education, only you know what it's worth, don't you? If I'm well-informed, but that's not what we teach Well, if you're not well-informed and not smart enough to figure out you need the information, I think you shouldn't be going to college. You should be living at your mommy's house, and she should pin a note to your vest every day when you leave with a phone number in case somebody finds you wandering around. You're not smart enough to be in college if you say, why, I want to be tr- become an astronomer. You say, what's, what's the average paycheck for astronomers? Figure it out. It takes you two seconds. If you're not smart enough to figure out what your profession is going to pay before you, before you go out and spend 100000 or $200,000 on a degree, you shouldn't be in college. No, and I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. But the fact of the matter is that there are a lot of people that aren't that smart that are going and taking out college loans. Yeah, and they shouldn't be. And I agree. If you were to say the, the government backs and hands out most of the student loans, and I think the, if, if we're going to do that, I'd rather have it done by the private sector. But if the government's going to do it, they should say to people, you need to know that you can pay this back. And if you're asking for a degree, like a, a master's of fine arts, and you're going to end up, maybe you'll get the top job at a, at a big website doing uh, graphic design. Or maybe you'll end up as a you know, $17 an hour docent guide at a museum. But that's up to you. And when you say they don't know their, their graduates can repay them, 
That's not their job. Their job is this is the degree we're offering. And if you decide to get a, cr a crazy degree that doesn't lead to a job, that's on you, isn't it? Well, it is. But I think that they should be obligated also to be transparent and say, Here, here's the information we have from our graduates. This, many, this percentage are employed in their field. Well, you know what, Craig? In, I do regular, I do regular are, segments the of the show on that very subject. And do you know there are a lot of colleges where if you look at the average wage paid to the average graduate of that college, that number I can look up in about one minute. It, it'll take me about a minute to find it because they do regular surveys that say when somebody graduates from our college, they make $4 more than the minimum wage. And you have to ask yourself, well, there's 2,000 work hours a year. That means I'll make uh, 8,000 bucks a year more than if I didn't go to college. Then you have to ask yourself, is it worth spending $100,000 so I can up my paycheck by 8000 bucks a year? For some people, it may be well worth it. I mean, maybe you want a degree in languages or something else, and maybe you've got a use for it that the college doesn't even know about. But, Craig, for giving all those loans, no way. Tell the people who decided to take the loan out they have to pay it, just like you do with a house or a car or an ordinary credit card. Thanks for the call. Glad to get your calls and your emails. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. So you don't have to. Bringing the political heat. He's Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. If you watch the news very often, you see pretty frequently that conservative speakers usually show up on an American college campus and then they get shouted down by the otherwise tolerance preaching folks who call themselves Antifa or uh, liberals, uh, Democrats, those kind of things on college campuses and at universities. But if they started to shout down movies as well, our movie guy, Christian Toto, host of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, joins me now. Hey, Christian, welcome back. And is this going to be the new technique? You shout down physical human speakers, and now you shout down movies too? It works. No one's complaining. As a matter of fact, the story I'm going to tell you about has been given almost no press coverage, even in right-of-center news outlets. I'm really... I'm perplexed and angry about it, but this is involving Candace Owens' film, uh, The Greatest Lie Ever Sold. It's an anti-BLM documentary. It came out last year. And uh, a month or two ago, actually in early March, it was shown at CCSU. It's a Connecticut university. And it was shut down about 15 minutes in. The, the noise, the, the mayhem, the chaos was so extreme from the far-left protesters that the show couldn't go on. And what's interesting about the whole situation is I've been tracking and keeping tabs of the situation, especially with the PR person behind the scenes at the university, because I want to find out what's going on and will people be punished for clamping down on free speech. And they allegedly did an investigation, and they've been tracking this, and they found three individuals 
that they're citing as the problem here, as if three people alone could shut down something like this. And they have been sanctioned. Now, you may ask, what does sanction mean? That's what I asked. <laughs> that was they my next question. Yeah, they, and I did just a, a quick Google search, and, and sanctions could be anything. It could be a, a little slap in the wrist. It could be expulsion. You don't know what. They also said that they couldn't reveal the names of the people, citing a, an act that seemed to be more tied to academic records and keeping them uh, you know, out of the public eye, which I understand to a certain degree. So nothing happened. It appears that no punishment will take place, and there's no expectation that this won't happen again. Why wouldn't it? We've seen what happened with Riley Gaines. We've seen what happened. Um, uh, Michael Knowles had some issues uh, just a few days ago on a campus. Uh, Charlie Kirk has had issues. Not only that, the, the universities don't stand up for free speech, don't stand up against violence, and are either implicitly on the side of the protesters or explicitly. It's it's just stunning, and it's just what happens in our culture right now. You know, when you mentioned the sanctions, the first thought that came to mind, since we're talking movies, was Team America. Maybe they're putting a harshly worded letter in their file, but it sounds like, I mean, that is, seriously, that's what, what I, I kind of expected. These liberal universities would say, well, we like the fact that they shouted these people down, so what we'll do is we'll just put a letter in their file, and it won't really matter to anybody, uh, you know, especially after the kid graduates, because what the heck does it do to you? But it, it almost suggests, is there another way to go after this with the universities, that if the universities won't respond, can we get the police to respond if there are people who are actually conspiring uh, to shut these things down? Uh, but I suspect that if the, liberal, if the liberal university is usually located in a liberal community, the local police will just go along with whatever the university wants to do or say it's outside our jurisdiction. But can you think of a good way to go after this and support free speech? Well, the one thing that I'm trying to do, and I wish more people were doing, is just give it more attention. Because if you pulled 100 people out of the blue and, and asked them if they had heard about this, they would say, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. The mainstream media will not cover things like this, because there really is no way to cover it without making the left look terrible, awful, because they are terrible and awful in this situation. So the varieties, the, you know, the Hollywood reporters, the headlines, even though there's a movie involved, and then you could also say it's a woman of color, Candace. This is Candace Owens' film. She's a, a black Daily Wire personality. But you won't hear any uh, black groups rushing to her side saying this is wrong. We need free speech. No one cares. It, it's, 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 it, I mean, I think we're all getting numb to it. And that's maybe even worse. Well, see, and I, I will admit that there's a, there's a point, to, uh, Christian, where I begin to hear about these things on a regular basis. And you say, okay, how many more do I mention? And you even wonder what's the tolerance of the people who listen to your show. You say, Lars, you're going to give us another list of all the incidents on campus that happened this week that are any different than last week. But it frustrates me because I've tried from my end of it to call um, uh, my, my line of attack was the board of trustees of the college. To, because they're usually made up of people from the community, usually successful people, people who run businesses. Many times it's men and women and others, and maybe even a person of color. And if you could get one of them on to say, why isn't the university acting against this? This is, this is a calculated attack. And, and, and I try to imagine if this were happening, if you were talking to a black board of trustees member and you said, you know, if every time Martin Luther King's civil rights 
protesters showed up in the community. They were hit with fire hoses and dogs and, and the things that actually did happen. Was, was that the right way for a community to say, we don't want your message in our town? And they'd say, no, of course not. Well, what happens when you're doing it in modern times, except you're doing it aimed not at a racial uh, civil rights group, but but at, at a an individual who's bringing a different message and just wants to bring the message in a peaceful way. I want to show the movie, let kids watch it, and and you have a bunch of people show up because I'm sure that all of those people would condemn what was done to King, even if even if what was done to King back in the day. And I don't know that it was ever this mild, but when King's civil rights protesters had showed up in a town, if they were just shouted down. To the point where they can never get their message across. You know, no fire hoses, no police dogs. Okay, but we're just going to simply make it impossible for them to communicate a message. If a bunch of people showed up on the steps at the Lincoln Memorial during the dream speech and started screaming into bullhorns, I have a feeling the crowd would have rightly gone up and had their way with the people with the bullhorns. But having said that, what if you just went up? and shouted loudly enough that nobody ever heard the dream speech from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. You'd say, well, that's outrageous. Well, then say the same thing when it's done to Candace Owens, a young lady I've had the opportunity to meet on a couple of occasions. We even shared the stage at, at one event where, where we were both speaking, and she seems like a very nice young lady. And, and this is just wrong to do this. But we can't get people to speak up about it. And we really can't shame the people doing this. That's another issue. You know, they don't have shame. They feel perfectly comfortable with these voices being shouted down. They do not support free speech. They call it hate speech, and they want to make it go away. And the media doesn't care. Now, if it was a liberal speaker and he or she was shouted down, you'd hear that from all, all across the country. It's, it's, if, it, if it is a right-of-center person, then the rules no longer apply, the protections no longer apply. And I, I'm, I'm out of ideas, and I think a lot of people, even if they are outraged, if, even if they are on the board of trustees, maybe they fund the school, maybe they write those big checks, I think they're afraid. I think they're afraid to stand up for someone like Candace Owens because they'll be afraid of being on the wrong side, and then they don't know what's going to happen next to them. It's, it's, well, it's cowardice. I mean, I've been at events where uh, groups like the Three Percenters will show up, and, and I know they were to some extent involved in J6, but this was a local group of Three Percenters. And, they said, and I said, what are you guys here for? Because I was just talking to them, and they said, we're here to protect you. I said, from what? <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and they said, uh, you know, from anything that might happen. And, and I kind yeah. of expect at some point there may be groups who say, okay, we're, turnabout's fair play. If you're going to attack uh, the people involved in our group, then we're going to protect them. Uh, the problem is the potential for that to turn into some kind of violent confrontation is is very very high, and so I'm I'm re- I guess I'm reluctant to push that kind of idea. Even though I think you know in a just world, if one side is going to physically attack with their voices, with the the chaos they create, the other side has no choice but to either one back down, which is cowardice. Uh, and, and it doesn't make sense. And, and you're ass- effectively ceding your right to free speech to these people. That's Christian Toto, the uh, host of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. Christian, it's always a pleasure. On social media, you can check me out on Twitter. We are, of course, on Getter as well. We're on Truth as well. And you can find my Instagram feed. And you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
Lars Larson Show. disease you hope you test positive for. Lars Larsen fever. No thermometer needed. Fever. You're listening the to the best of the Lars Larsen Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larsen Show. It's a pleasure to be with you and I'll get to your phone calls and emails in a moment. I guess uh, I learned from my parents who said uh, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably and almost certainly is too good to be true, which makes it all the stranger when I see so many young Americans who say they love the idea of socialism. Now, I always remind myself, these are young people who grew up in a capitalist society that is the best place on planet Earth, affords the greatest level of freedom and opportunity because it's a capitalist society. When I look at the socialist societies of planet Earth, where you wouldn't want to move, places like Venezuela, uh, the former Soviet Union, now Russia, uh, China, which is more of a communist society, or say Cuba, you say, I don't want to go there. You say, well, those are full-on socialist. That's what socialism is. So why are there so many young Americans who are attracted to this idea? Well, the perfect guy to talk to is Bill Federer, nationally known historian, president of Amerisearch, Inc., which is a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage and the best-selling author most recently of Socialism, The Real History from Plato to President. Uh, to present. Uh, Bill, welcome back to the program. How are you? Oh, it's great to be with you. I want to talk to you about this. Why is socialism so popular in some quarters, understanding that the guy you're talking to hates the idea of socialism? <laughs> well, I uh, start off with Plato. Why? Because he's the first one that talked about everybody owning everything in common. And it sounds nice till you think it through. Somebody has to be in the government handing out the common stuff. And they will always be tempted to want to funnel a little extra to their family and friends on the side and hold back from someone they don't like. And before you know it, it gets discretionary. And the saying is, he who holds the purse strings has the power. So every attempt at everybody owning everything equally always ends up with a deep state bureaucracy passing out favors to their friends with the most corrupt guy at the top. And... Um, one of the things I found interesting, people say, well, wasn't the early church socialist? Uh, no, the early church was the early church. Socialism is counterfeit early church, and the difference is between the word voluntary and involuntary. Right? Early believers voluntarily sold their property, laid it at the feet of the apostles. They didn't have the Roman government take away their property and laid it at the feet of Pilate. When the children of Israel went into the Promised Land, every family was given property. If you own property, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called that being blessed. And you can give away some of your stuff. The Bible called that charity. Well, Lenin said a socialism is a transition phase to communism. And Karl Marx says communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. So if you don't own anything, how can you be charitable? Right? How can you give away what you don't have? What, are you going to break the law and now you're a thief? No, God entrusts you with stuff and then gives you opportunities to show on the outside the love of God that's on the inside. Now, I tell people, what if older fish could tell younger fish to stay away from shiny things dangling in the water? <laughs> but they can't. And so every new generation of younger fish has seized it and attracted it and caught. 
Socialism is a shiny thing dangling in the water. Free food, free clothes, free education. Free, free is attractive, but there's a hook. You give up control of your life. Yeah, you do. And, and, and I guess my favorite example has always been more, well, more re- recent history than biblical history, although I, I, I very much, pro- I'm, a, I'm a Protestant Christian, so uh, I very much believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. But on the economic side of things, you, you go to the first uh, colonies in America, which were set up as commonwealths. Everybody's going to work hard. Everybody's going to produce, whether it's hunting deer or farming or building the, the, the village. And then we'll all draw from the community storehouse. And that literally killed people in some cases. And in other cases, they just escaped death when they said, OK, let's throw out the Commonwealth idea. Everybody grows for themselves. Everybody can trade with each other. And they started up basic capitalism to say it doesn't work if you all draw from the community storehouse, whether you work hard or not. And, and it literally did come very close to killing a lot of people. Right. So the pilgrims had no money, so they went to investors in England who had the London Company, and they lent them the money, but they formed a company with bylaws. And the bylaws said everything that they had gained from fishing, cooking, hunting, trading fish shall go into ye common stock, and everyone's livelihood shall come out of ye common stock. They tried it. They almost died. Governor William Bradford writes, the failure of that experiment of communal service, which was tried for several years by good and honest men, proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato and other ancients applauded by some of latter times. They knew they were trying to live out this Plato thing. He goes, that the taking away of private property and possession of it in community would make a state happy and flourishing, as if they were wiser than God. He says, in this case, there was confusion. The young men who were able to do twice as much work as the old guy got paid the same. Uh, The old man considered it a uh, uh, indignity to be classed in labor with the young guy. And the women, he says that uh, the wives were obliged to do service for other men, like cooking, washing their clothes, etc. They considered it a kind of slavery, and many husbands would not allow it. He says that... um, uh, after much discussion, it was decided that every family would get their own plot of land. This made all hands more industrious. The women now went willingly into the field to plant corn and took their little ones with them, while before they would allege weakness and to have compelled them would have been thought great oppression. So here they tried this owning everything in common. Nobody was motivated to do anything. They almost starved to death. They scrapped it. They get a nice harvest, and they have a Thanksgiving, and we celebrate the Thanksgiving. But that came out of capitalism. I'm talking to Bill Federer, who's a historian, president of Amerisearch, and the author of Socialism, The Real History from Plato to Present. So is it possible that that all these younger people, and it's generally younger people who are enamored with this idea, uh, didn't get a decent history uh, uh, education when they were in either K-12 or university? Oh, definitely. Uh, There's actually a concept called deconstruction, where you want to actually... Say negative things about a country's founders so people will be repulsed by them. Then you get them into a neutral where they don't remember where they came from. And then you brainwash them into the future you have planned for them. It's a sales technique. If I was a toothpaste salesman, the first thing I do is tell you negative things about the toothpaste you're currently brushing with. You're still brushing with that stuff. Haven't you read it'll eat the enamel off your teeth? You're repulsed by it. Now I have you in a neutral. You're open-minded. What are all the toothpaste out there? Then I give you my pitch for this tartar control breath freshener stuff. Well, that's what they do. They go into the classrooms, and they say the founders were all chauvinists and took land from Indians, and they had slaves, and the kids are repulsed by them. Now you got the kids in a neutral, 
and then you can give them your pitch for socialism or the uh, different uh, sexual agendas or Sharia or whatever. Um, but it's a, an intentional tactic that George Orwell writes about in his book, 1984. Um, one other thing I think is interesting is the tactics. So the most common form of government in world history is kings, Nimrod, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan. That's the norm. It's a gang style of structure. Democracies and republics are attempts to take the power of the king, give it to the people. But what if the king wants the power back? Does he just ask for it? No. So there's two methods in which people will give up control of their life. Fear, when people get afraid, they will trade freedom for security. And free stuff. <laughs> it's like a drug dealer takes over a neighborhood two ways. He can come in with guns and get people in fear. They panic and agree to submit to the mob. Uh, but the other way is the drug dealer's so nice, he's giving away free drugs until you get hooked. And then you want some more free drugs? <laughs> You're going to give up control of your life. You can sell yourself into prostitution. So that's the strategy. It's like a hunter catches animals through guns or bait. There's a, there's a back door and there's a front door. And so you see these things playing out in front of us right now. We get the whole world into fear. Let's panic. Let's give up all of our freedoms and in exchange. Uh, you know, there was an interesting quote from Peter Thiel, and he is the founder of PayPal. Yep. Uh, he says we should be more afraid of the um, uh, more afraid of the Antichrist than afraid of Armageddon. Absolutely right. Bill Federer, the book is called Socialism, the Real History from Plato to Present. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. drawn in the sand. He's the one that crosses it. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, with Donald Trump, who I think is going to win the Republican nomination in the summer of next year, and of course, Ron DeSantis in the race, the GOP is going to have a full fight card. But who should the Democrats back in 2024? And if you're simplistic and say, well, it's got to be Joe Biden. I mean, he's the president already. He says he's going to run, although he hasn't officially announced. Uh, should they push Gavin Newsom instead? Peter Roth joins me now, who's a Newsweek contributing editor and a great friend of the program. Peter, welcome back. Hey, Lars, good to be with you. I mean, if they've got a disaster in Joe Biden, uh, I, could they get worse by putting Gavin Newsom up, uh, Newsom up instead and just kick Joe to the curb? No, they're actually trading up if they can swap, if they can pull off the Biden for Newsom swap. Even though they're Newsom absolutely trading up. Well, they're trading up. He's he's he, he's perhaps more more uh, cogent. Uh, he, he isn't completely brain dead upstairs, but he's got to explain you're going to do to America what you've done to California. That, But that's his platform. He's running. He's going to run. And, and remember, he has thrown his his total, complete, full throated support behind Biden. So no one can accuse him of stabbing Biden in the back, which is going to be important to some people. Newsom is going to run on, I'm going to do to America what I did for California, which in his telling is just made it a wonderful free state. 
<laughs> which is true. He's made it absolutely free. Nobody has to pay for anything anymore. They could just steal it if they want it. They don't have to worry about paying for abortions or um, driver's licenses. Um, it's all free because the wealthiest people in California are paying for it. Except a lot of the wealthiest people in California are deciding to pack up and move out, aren't they? Yes. As, as, as Boone says in Animal House, we were just leaving, which is what people in California are doing in droves. Gavin Newsom thinks he can pull the wool over America's eyes and talk about the hot-button cultural issues where California is comfortably in the progressive stream, and he doesn't have to talk about how they're closing Walmarts and Whole Foods in San Francisco because they can't control the crime and the homelessness. And they have all of these um, refugee camps set up because they can't control the state border with Mexico. He thinks he gets the glance over all that stuff, and the liberals in the national media will cover it up for him because it'll be Trump, 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 Trump 24-7, just like it was when he ran against Biden in 2020 and Biden hid in his basement in Delaware. Well, let me ask you this. I'm talking to Peter Roth from Newsweek. So Hillary Clinton made a crucial error, at least one. I mean, she's made so many. But she forgot there's the Electoral College. She focused on the popular votes. Mm -hmm. so Newsom nails California, nails uh, maybe Chicago and Illinois, nails New York City, and maybe nails Miami. And the rest of America says, we're not putting that guy in the White House. Uh, how does he get, get over that problem? Right now where we are, the country is divided between red states and blue cities and suburbs. They're not really blue states. They're blue cities and suburbs like New York City and Chicago and Portland that are dictating. Oh, yeah. uh, did you know, by the way, they they announced today they're closing the REI in Portland? I, what will I, they do? Where will I, where will I people get their sleeping bags? I, I know. I, I got to tell you, Peter, and, and that REI, Recreational Equipment Incorporated, is a great success story over, what, 85 years. They've been in that location, mm -hmm. and it's one of the toniest neighborhoods in the entire city. I mean, it's where I know this is chump change where you live, but uh, there are condos there that cost 5 to $8 million. I realize that gets you a starter shack in parts of California and New York, but... But this right. is a this is one of it's think of it as the kind of kind of like the commercial Chevy Chase of uh, mm -hmm. of, of Portland. Mm -hmm. And and uh, last fall, they had so many thefts and so many robberies. There were people driving cars through the front of a signature store to rob and burgle the place. And you say and they finally said, look, we're out of here. We can we can take the great outdoors. We can take wild animals. We can take mountains and wild rivers, but we can't take what's going on here. We, we, we'd rather deal with cocaine bear than with the people who are coming into our stores and walking off with our merchandise. And it's the same thing in Gavin Newsom's California, but it's not being talked about. And so with the red states versus the blue cities, you've got about 45% of the country that's for Trump. 45% of the country that's against Trump, no matter what, and you're fighting over 10% of the electorate. And Newsom thinks that by being on the progressive side on the culture war issues, he can win over 
6% of those moderate independent voters who went with Biden in 2020 and who went against the Republicans in 2022, blunting the impact of the red wave that should have hit. Tell me this then, Peter, how do they get rid of Joe? Um, well, assuming that God doesn't do it himself, right? He may. It, there may be some issue tied to Hunter Biden's dealings. Uh, uh, Congressman Jim Comer, who's the, the head of the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability, and a few other congressmen went over to the Treasury Department today to look at some of their financial records. And while he didn't go into detail on what they saw, um, what they saw, they said, was concerning. That could do it. Um, nearly the question of age could do it. Uh, and if you look at the poll numbers, um, even even close to a majority of Democrats are saying they want a choice in the primary. In the primary. Yeah, what, what is it, 25 percent want Joe to run for re-election, the other 75 percent want anything but? Want anything but. And, yeah, and-, and half of the country says they they think that the Democrats should have a choice. Now, that's not all Democrat voters, but half of the country says that they think they should have, that the Democrats should be offered a choice. But the given president the le- is not winning any popularity contests. No, but given the legal peril he faces the minute he leaves the mm-hmm. office, especially when the Democrats have no further use for him, uh, does he say, well, I'm not going to go quietly? I'm going to hang in there by my fingernails if I have to? Well, I think I think option one is that they 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 make a deal, uh, but you know option two perhaps is that they don't care. You know, Biden Biden was a tool. He was a device to get rid of Trump. That's all he ever was. That was the one thing they needed him to do. He did it. Uh, now he's delivered more on the Bernie Sanders agenda than um, than the people who voted for him in the primary thought, and so they regard him as expendable. The real issue for them is how you get rid of Kamala Harris. Yeah. Um, you know, as a sitting vice president, you know, how do you get rid of her? Well, you know, one way would be for Sonia Sotomayor to announce that she's leaving um, the Supreme Court, and then you slot Kamala into that uh, lifetime appointment. Absolutely right. Peter, thank you. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.